Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We come now to the 30th verse of the 4th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The title of the message this morning is The Holy One of God. This particular passage of Scripture is ironic. One of the great ironies of the New Testament to me is that God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, who had a great benefit of having what the Scriptures call the oracles of God, the very Word of God in the Old Testament, hundreds of messianic promises, refused to see and believe that Jesus was He. And yet as we're gonna see this morning, even the demons recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, the Holy One of God. So let's read our text this morning. Luke chapter four, backing up to verse 30. Now you remember that Jesus had come to his hometown of Nazareth in the preceding verses, and he had read from Isaiah chapter 61, which is a great messianic passage. And when he finished speaking, He declared that those scriptures were fulfilled in their hearing, meaning that he was the Messiah that Isaiah was foretelling 800 years earlier. And it made the people so angry that they took Jesus outside the city up into a high point and tried to throw him off of a cliff to kill him. And verse 30 tells us what happened next. But passing through their midst, he went his way. In some supernatural way, Jesus just disappeared because it was not yet his time to die. Now we pick up in verse 31. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed of the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing and reading of his word. Now it says Jesus came to Capernaum. Now Capernaum was a much larger city than Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, but it was in that region of Galilee, in and around the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus' ministry was headquartered. In fact, he made Capernaum his adopted hometown. And like Nazareth, Capernaum had a synagogue. In fact, it probably had more than one. And so Jesus goes into a synagogue in Capernaum, and like he had done in Nazareth, he reads the scriptures and he begins to teach. And wherever and whenever Jesus taught, those in the audience always noticed something about him that was striking. And that is the fact that he spoke as one having authority. Several places in the New Testament describes the people as being amazed at the authority with which he preached. Now, when I was first beginning to have opportunities as a very young man to preach in local churches, I was given some great advice I don't remember who gave it to me, probably several people, but they said there's three things you have to remember about preaching. Stand up, speak up, and shut up. 
You might have been given that advice if you do any public speaking. Now, really, in Jesus' day, the posture of speaking was not standing as it is today. It was sitting. And so the rabbis often, after they read the scripture, would sit down in a posture of teaching. But the meaning is the same. That is, when you speak, don't be intimidated. Don't shuffle your feet and scratch your head. Understand that uh, the topic of which you're speaking is one that you, you have some understanding. To speak up in, in the old days meant literally that. Because there was no amplification, you had to shout to be heard oftentimes in, in a large room. And thankfully we won't have to do that today. But I think another application of that is be clear. I tell our young aspiring pastors and interns here from the seminary all the time that when you're preaching, aspire to clarity rather than profundity. Sometimes when we're preaching or teaching, we think we really need to wow people with our intellect or, or some uh, understanding of another language. But we need to be clear because we're trying to, if we're preaching, we're preaching for change. We're trying to help you in your process of sanctification. So it's important to be clear. Albert Moeller is the president of Southern Seminary. And I heard him say recently, when he was asked about the state of preaching in the Southern Baptist Convention, he said, there's some good preaching going on, but he says, I must tell you that much of the preaching I've heard recently all has something in common. The pastor comes dangerously close to making a clear point from the scripture, then he swerves at the last second to avoid it. And we don't wanna be like that. We wanna be absolutely clear when we're teaching the word of God. And, and then we need to know when it's time to be quiet, to, to, to shut up. Um, as pastors say, sometimes when we're preaching, we can't find a place to land the plane. And so we just circle the auditorium a few times. And uh, having, having three services in a row like we do every Sunday, I, I've learned that I can't talk forever and you're blessed by that, I'm sure. I remember several years ago, I was preaching at a denominational meeting and uh, I, I've learned since then, this is very common, but it was the first time I'd experienced it. They had a large television monitor on the front row and it had a countdown clock. And when you came within two minutes of your allotted time, the clock turned from green to yellow. And when you got within one minute of your allotted time, it started turning red. And when it got past your allotted time, it started blinking, threatening to explode. <laughs> and so uh, we, we have ways of, of doing that. But my point of all that is this, Jesus was an expert teacher, wasn't he? We can all learn from reading the gospels of how Jesus taught. He taught as one having authority. He taught with power as we'll see today. And he taught with clarity. And so let's look first of all at the authority of Christ. What does it mean that Jesus taught with authority? Well, that, that word is uh, a very simple Greek word, exousia. Ex means out of, we go out exits, out of the building. And so when we speak with authority, we're speaking out of our own heart, out of our own life. We might say firsthand knowledge. Now this stands in sharp contrast with the way that most of the teachers, the rabbis in Jesus' day taught. Most of them depended upon quoting more famous rabbis than they to give what they were saying some weight. Jesus simply declared the truth. The Old Testament prophets used to teach this way. Thus says the Lord, right? When someone speaks with authority, they speak what they know to be true in their very innermost being. And so when we call someone who, who is tried and tested uh, in, in first-hand knowledge, we, we may say that they have authority 
or they've become an authority in that particular field. Well, Jesus was an authority on God's word because he's God in the flesh. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And Jesus co-equal with the Father, we can rightly say that he is the author of all scripture. And so obviously he's the authority in it. Now the people to whom Jesus taught recognized the difference in the way that Jesus taught and the way that other teachers taught just like that. In fact, the scriptures indicate that the thing that the scribes and the Pharisees and the other teachers hated most about Jesus was that he was stealing their thunder. When the people heard Jesus teach and then the next guy in line teach, uh, there was a letdown. You, by the way, you never want to follow a master at doing anything, whether it's singing or sports or whatever. And they found it very hard to follow Jesus after he had taught in a synagogue. And, that, and they were embarrassed by their differences and they began to make wild accusations against Jesus. One of the accusations they made against Jesus is that he speaks in the power of Beelzebub. Do you remember that? That the devil is the one who's giving him this all kind of authority. And what did Jesus say? That a house divided can't stand. By the way, Abraham Lincoln is always quoted with that. That wasn't Lincoln, that was Jesus. Said a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now they hated Jesus for the way he spoke with authority. Remember what the people said in Nazareth? whispering to one another, is this not Joseph's son? He hasn't been to an Ivy League school. He doesn't have the authority to speak like that. He's a carpenter's son. Later on in his life, they put him down because of his age. He's not yet 50 years old. Who does he think he is? The young pastor Timothy experienced some of that in this church at Ephesus. So Paul wrote him a letter. Remember what he said? Let no one look down upon you because of your youth, but set an example in word and deed. That's why I said this morning, these young people have set an example for those of us that are older. They come up here every Sunday, they practice, they give of their time, they want to do their best for the glory of God. But Jesus also said this, a servant is not better than his master. And as his disciples observed the way that people slandered Jesus and put him down and accused him of things that were not true, he said, we, his followers, can expect the same treatment. Now that is true at large as it relates to persecution in the world, but it's also true just in our teaching. Because one of the things that our culture cannot tolerate, and I use that word specifically, is a person who speaks with authority, especially upon trans, uh, transcendental matters. That is how the earth was made. If you stand up in most public universities and declare that God created the earth in six literal days, if you make it out alive, you'll be a scandal, right? Because that is one thing we can't say, is that we know how the earth was made, or what our purpose is, why are we here? We know that as Christians, that's to glorify God. But certainly when we talk about spiritual matters, matters of eternity, that a person can know whether they're going to spend eternity in heaven and hell, that, that's just a bridge too far for most people. And yet, we have been given that kind of authority from the Lord Jesus. We can declare those truths. The reaction though, most of the time by a lost and dying world is who in the world do you think you are? To speak with, what about those people who are Hindus? What about those people who are Buddhist or Muslim? How dare you say you have truth? Because the one thing that our culture will not tolerate is, is truth. Now, ours is not the only culture like that. In the ancient world, 
The Apostle Paul encountered this on his missionary trips. Do you remember in Acts chapter 17, he entered the city of Athens. And Athens in the ancient world was the hub of intellect and learning and philosophy. And so Paul is, is preaching the gospel and it's something they haven't heard before, but that they recognize him as not having come from their schools. And they said, who is this seed picker is the word that was used. In other words, he's just an armchair philosopher. He's heard a little bit of this, a little bit of that. He's all mixed it together and now claims he's got some new revelation. And so they called him and says, we'll hear from you. And, G and Paul got up and he spoke something new. It didn't come from him, it came from God. And he told them the wonderful gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And most of them rejected it out of hand. Laughed, laughed him out of the building. But a few said, we'll hear more about this. And still others later came to faith. And that is the way today. Don't be discouraged, young people, to stand up for your faith in school or businessmen or woman. You can't control how people are going to respond to the truth. It's just up to you to speak the truth. And Paul spoke the truth with authority. Now he said, now note this, that we're to speak the truth, but speak the truth with love, right? We're not to be people about the ears with our, our Bible, but we are to tell the truth. Jesus' authority was on display and his power was on display next in his command. That's our second point, the power of Christ. Now there are people who speak as if they have authority and they don't have the weight or the power to back it up. Jesus spoke with authority and he had the power to, to back it up. Listen to this. In the synagogue, the same synagogue, I take it, that he was just preaching in, there was a man possessed by a spirit of an unclean demon. Now that is a rhetorical redundancy, unclean demon. Uh, all demons are unclean, right? And, and he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, I almost titled this sermon, The Orthodox Demon, but I didn't want to offend anybody. But did you know that demons have orthodox theology? Anytime Jesus confronted a demon, they knew who he was. They called him the Holy One of Israel. That's why I say this is ironic. The people in the synagogue who thought they were fine with God did not recognize Jesus as the Holy One of Israel, and yet the demons do. Now, that doesn't mean they bow their knee to his authority, but they know who he is. So what does Jesus do? Verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. Now before we go a step farther, let me say as clearly as I can, demons are real. Demons are not figments of our imagination. Demons are not the attempt of the ancient world to explain the inexplicable, demons are real. There are 16 episodes at least in the New Testament of demon possession, and so demons are real. I say that because I can remember back in the 1980s when I was about the same age as these young people who sang in the choir today, we had a Sunday school lesson on this very passage, Luke chapter four. And our Sunday school material was produced by our Southern Baptist Convention. And I remember in the Sunday school lesson, there was a note in parenthesis on the side that said, likely many of the things that the Bible describes as demon possession are really the fact that the people of the ancient world did not understand science and medicine. And so that God allowed them to call it a demon. 
Now, I tell you that to say thank the Lord that you'll never see anything like that in our curriculum today. Because thankfully, the Lord has brought our denomination back to a more uh, and deeper commitment to, to the Word of God. Demons are real. I know that because G Jesus talked to them. Jesus did not communicate with mythology, right? Jesus did not communicate with a metaphor. He was speaking with a real demon. Now, there is no evidence in the Bible, though, lest you fear, that a believer, a born-again Christian, can become demon-possessed. I know some Christians, and by the way, Christians today tend to make two mistakes in the area of demons. One is we ignore them, pretend they don't exist, call them myths and fables. And the other is we become obsessed by them, right? And see a demon under every hedge. Now, we need to take a biblical view of demons. Demons are real, but we don't have to fear them. The scripture says if we resist the devil, what will he do? He'll flee from us. And so um, there's no evidence in the Bible that a believer can be demon possessed, so don't fear. Because the Holy Spirit indwells born again Christians, right? And the Holy Spirit can't have anything to do with demons. It's like oil and water. They can't exist in the same place. But demons are created beings. And because they're created beings, Jesus has authority over them because he's the creator. But demons are orthodox in their theology. They call him the Holy One of God. And, and so what does he say? He says, be quiet and come out of him. And do you know what he did? He was quiet and he came out of him. Isn't that interesting when Jesus makes a command in the supernatural realm, it's obeyed, just as it's obeyed in the physical realm? Now think of some of the times Jesus made commands in his ministry. Do you remember when the tempest came up and he and the disciples were in the boat out on the Sea of Galilee and they all thought they were going to drown? Jesus commanded the wind and the waves, did he? Peace, be still. And instantly the surface of that lake was like glass. And his disciples were fearful because they were more afraid of a God in their boat than they were a storm in the sea, right? Do you remember when Jesus was called to Bethany? Lazarus was sick. He got a message, come with haste. And yet he delayed a couple more days. And finally he makes it down. And his sisters meet him and say, if you'd only come earlier, you could have saved Lazarus. And he goes to the entrance of the tomb and he makes a command. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And do you know what Lazarus did? He came forth. <laughs> That's what happens when Jesus gives a command. Jesus has not only authority, he has the power to back up his commands. Did you see the lyrics on the screen of that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, that Martin Luther wrote hundreds of years ago. He says, and though this world with devils filled, Luther knew that demons were not metaphors, that the world was full of devils. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. In fact, the Bible indicates in many places that there's a whole realm of spiritual existence that, that we're not aware of most of the time. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is 2 Kings chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but it's the story of Elisha. Remember, Elijah was the great prophet of Israel, and when it came time for him to go to heaven, Elisha was to take his place. And before Elisha took the mantle, that's where we get, by the way, that phrase in our culture taking the mantle of leadership from Elijah, he said he would only do it if God would give him a double blessing, a double portion of the power of Elijah. God granted him that, and Elijah went up in the chariot of fire. And so later on in 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha has become a great prophet himself, 
and Israel is at war with a kingdom called Aram, A-R-A-M. And every time the king of Aram made a strategic plan to attack Israel, the king of Israel was always one step ahead of him and he was defeated. He got so frustrated that he called his generals together in the tent and he asked the question, which one of you is for them? (laughs) There's gotta be a spy in the camp telling our strategy. And one of them said, no king, the truth is there's a prophet named Elisha down in the city of Dothan who God is giving these revelations to and he's communicating them to Israel and that's why we can't make any progress in this war. We says, do you know where he is? He says, yeah, we know where he lives. Well, you take the army down there and kill him. And so they take armies and chariots and they start circling the city of Dothan. And Elisha's servant looks out and he sees this and he's scared to death. And he says, Master, what in the world are we going to do? We're going to die. And Elisha prayed for that servant. And he said, Lord, help him to see that those who are for us are more than those who are for them. And you know what happened? The scripture says the scales of his eyes were open spiritually and he saw on the hillsides the angels company of the Lord in fiery chariots. See, they were there the whole time, but he couldn't see it. And that's happening in the world today. And, and this, is, this is the reality. And, and so we need to understand today that those who are for us are more than those who are against us. Now we must move on. What we see in this episode is the physical and uh, the the spiritual realms. And Jesus was often frustrated with the people that he was speaking to because they only thought and lived and breathed in the physical. And much of what he was teaching was spiritually related. And and a great example of that is when he fed the 5,000. Do you remember? He was teaching them these wonderful spiritual truths and he looked out on the throngs of people and he says, they haven't had anything to eat all day. They're hungry. And so he fed them miraculously. But the next morning they show up for breakfast and Jesus is already gone. He's gone to the other side and they get in boats and chase him down and finally catch up with him. And he said, basically, you came not to see me, but because you were hungry. And Jesus was not fooled by the crowds. They weren't coming because they were so desperate for forgiveness of sins and they wanted intimacy with the Savior. They came because they thought that they could get something from him in the physical. In fact, the scripture says after he fed the 5,000, some of them tried to take him by force to make him the Messiah, the King, but it was not yet his time. And uh, really that leads us to, to our third point, that is the reports of Christ. Look what it says, and amazement came upon them all. By the way, that's not wrong. That that is an appropriate response to being in the presence of Jesus. Amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another saying, what is this message? And and that's a little bit of a strange translation of that. Really, Really what that means is what is this word? He spoke with power and authority. They're, they're wondering where it came from, in other words. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Now this district was the district of Galilee and there were about 200 municipalities, some of them small villages, some of them larger cities. But they didn't have telephone, obviously. They didn't have telegraph even. The only way to get from one village to the other was by footpath or 
If it was across the other side, they would travel by boat back and forth. But in any case, it took a long time to get any message anywhere. And yet this message of Jesus' power and authority began to travel like wildfire throughout Galilee. And if you read the whole of Scripture, there were times in Jesus' ministry where there were literally thousands of people who followed him everywhere he went. He couldn't get a moment's rest. And if Jesus were a politician, he would have ridden this wave of popularity all the way to the highest office in the land, right? Isn't that what we do today? If we have a war hero who wins some medals, does something truly heroic, when he retires from the military, what's the first thing we want to do? Get him to run for office, right? Let's ride his popularity to promote our political agenda. Even sports figures, figures who are particularly popular. First thing you hear after one of them retires is, do you have any aspirations for public office? Let's ride this wave of popularity all the way to the White House. But Jesus didn't have those sort of aspirations. He knew who he was and why he was here. And it was not to hold political office. It was to die for the sins of the world. And so he did not allow that. Why? Because he's God and he knew their hearts. What the people wanted who claimed to be followers of Jesus in the beginning, what they wanted was their bellies full and their life made more comfortable. They were not looking for forgiveness of sins. They were not looking for intimacy with the Savior. And I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but a lot of the throngs of people in our own country who go to church every week are not looking for intimacy with the Savior. They're looking to have their ears scratched. They're looking for the pastor to tell them how to have a more comfortable life in the here and now. But Jesus would have none of that. One of the lyrics of one of the greatest hymns of all time is this, speaking of Jesus, He breaks the chains of canceled sin and sets the captives free. That's what Jesus came to do, not to fill bellies. I think that's most clearly seen in Matthew chapter 9. So let's turn there. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Here's the story of Jesus healing a man who was a paralytic. Very famous passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. It says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. Now, other passages in, in the New Testament tell us that this city was Capernaum. That's why I said Jesus adopted Capernaum as his hometown during his earthly ministry. Verse 2 says, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. When he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. See, the Bible says that Jesus has authority in every realm. Paul says it this way in Philippians, of things in heaven things on earth and things under the earth. There is, there is no place or no realm of existence in which Jesus is not God. And so here is Jesus proving that in the face of doubt. Here in Capernaum, they bring this man who has a noticeable deformity and physical deficiency. By the way, have you noticed that the quote, faith healers don't do this? They bring people on stage who as far as we can tell are physically normal 
and they claim some inner healing that we can't verify. Jesus didn't do that. He took a man who was twisted and gnarled likely and he healed him and he got up and he walked. But you notice that was not the first thing that Jesus did because he knew this man's greatest need was not physical healing. Now you ask a hundred people that knew him, what is this man's greatest need? They'll tell you he needs to be able to walk again. But Jesus knew him better than they did. And he knew that this man, like every other human being in that room, was a sinner who needed forgiveness. And so it was the first thing he said to this young man. He doesn't say, rise and walk. He says, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> By the way, if you're a Christian here today, you're born again, no matter what you're going through, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. So whatever happens the rest of your life is okay because your sins are forgiven. And yet Jesus knew their hearts, calling them a blasphemer. He said, which is easier to say, your, your sins are forgiven or arise and walk? Well, in the literal sense, both are easy to say. Both are very difficult to do. And so to show that he had authority in both realms, the physical and the spiritual, he said, not only are your sins forgiven, but arise and, and walk. And he got up his bed and he went home. Now, Jesus was not the puppet of the Pharisees. They often wanted to see a show. Give us a sign. Jesus finally said at the end of his ministry, I'm done giving signs. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, who was three days in the belly. The, the, the resurrection is the next sign you're going to get, in other words. But he did many miracles and signs, the Bible said. And the reason he did those was not to entertain the masses. It was to verify his truth claims that he was the Messiah. And yet, it was never enough. They always needed one more miracle. But hear this very clearly. The ultimate miracle, the ultimate authority and manifestation of Christ's power is the fact that he can pronounce people's sins forgiven. That's the ultimate. Now, you, I'm not exaggerating. The Bible says that everything was created by Jesus and through Jesus. The earth the water, the plants, the stars. The, but the greatest manifestation of his authority is his power to cancel sins. And he does that. And only God has that authority. Now, now friends, let's be very clear. You and I, in and of ourselves, don't have the authority to cancel sins, do we? Someone asks us for forgiveness, we ought to grant it as we are enabled by the Holy Spirit. But in the, the grand sense of canceling sins, in the cosmic sense, you and I can't do it because we're sinners. We don't have that authority. But we know one who can, right? What a privilege that is. That as we go about our business, as we go out into the world, as we talk with our neighbors and friends and coworkers and classmates and teammates, we can tell them not only that they're sinners, but there is a savior. There is one who can and will cancel their sin debt, who has taken upon himself the sins of the world, and if they will repent of their sins and bow their knee to his lordship, that they'll become sons of the Most High. What a wonderful and glorious truth that is. That's why you and I don't have to shuffle our feet and look down and mumble into our shirt when we tell people about Jesus. You can stand up and speak up, and when you're done, shut up. <laughs> be quiet. No one's going to be saved by our nagging. But when you've told them the truth clearly, leave it to the Holy Spirit then. 
We can't save anybody, but he uses us to communicate the gospel and then he takes that communicated truth and he quickens their heart and gives them the faith to believe. Let's ask him to do that this week, right? Ask the Lord to do miracles among us by canceling the sin debt of sinners that we know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. And even 2,000 years ago, as Jesus spoke, many people rejected him. And Father, we're often, I am, frustrated, sometimes even angry by how Christians are treated in the world. And yet I'm reminded this morning of how Jesus was treated even by people in his hometown and his home region. Lord, I'm grateful that there's always a remnant of people who believe, and that's true today. And so we're confident as we go out and we share the gospel, we know not everyone will believe. But we believe some will. And so Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to rejoice and celebrate every time a lost person is saved. Help us, Father, to speak with clarity and conviction, knowing we're not the Savior, but we know the Savior. Help us to introduce him to as many people as we can this week. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.